Hi, I'm your host, Brittany Spence, and this is In the Face of Illness. We are a podcast committed to cultivating a greater understanding of the many resources available for families facing childhood illness, because we believe this is a vital topic of conversation, not only for families in the throes of the fight, but for everyone. Ultimately, we are here to offer hope in the face of illness. Terry and Amy Prosser are from Graniteville, South Carolina. Their youngest daughter, Carly, was born in 2012. When Carly was just five months old, she was diagnosed with cortical visual impairment and two months later began having infantile spasms. This is a catastrophic form of epilepsy. Terry researched doctors and hospitals that specialize in infantile spasms and quickly found Dr. James Wheelis in Labonner Children's Hospital. The Prossers traveled to Memphis every couple of months for eight years for her care that quickly evolved into seeing many specialists at Labonner. She was diagnosed with microcephaly capillary malformation syndrome in 2016. Carly passed away in 2021 at nine years old. The Prossers are so grateful for the care and compassion Labonner Children's Hospital, FedEx Family House, and the Forest Spence Fund gave them during their journey. Amy still keeps in touch with many that became family to them. We are honored to have Amy here with us today. Um, I had the great joy and honor of getting to know Carly and Amy and Amy's precious mama, um, Ansley. Um, Ansley and I have even talked a little bit um, since Carly's passing. She was a, a great resource to us on how to love siblings well um, that have a you know medically fragile um, sibling. And so we're huge fans of the Prosser family and so glad you're on. Um, so we talked a little bit in your bio that um, at five months old, what she was diagnosed with cortical visual impairment. Did you, was your pregnancy fine and normal? And, and I also want to say it didn't talk in your bio that you have an older daughter, um, Ansley, who had no medical issues, correct? Right. Ansley was completely healthy, and um, she's 19 years old now. And my pregnancy with Carly was perfectly normal. I was an okay. OB nurse and worked with the OBGYN office, so we were checking on her all the time, and everything was normal. There was no indication that anything was wrong. Okay. And so before five months, you know, knowing that, you also are in that field. I mean, tell me, were there things that alarmed you and concerned you to make you even say like something's happening here? There was. So I guess it was around eight weeks that um, we realized she just wasn't feeding well. She would vomit after breastfeeding. I mean, it was just constant vomiting, which can happen, you know, in babies, but this was just excessive and I didn't experience it with Ansley. And then I did breastfeed and she never made eye contact with me while I was feeding her, which is also, it was just a red flag for me. She seemed really floppy. Um, like there wasn't much muscle tone there. Um, again, she was a newborn. So the doctors were reluctant to think anything was wrong and kept saying, you know, she's just going to develop a little slower than Ansley or differently than Ansley. So stop comparing her. Um, so there was no huge red flags or indications that anything was wrong, but there were little signs that I thought my gut was just telling me we needed to look further. 
And so we spent the next months actually going back and forth to the pediatrician. And it finally got to where I was basically begging for referrals, like something's not right. Okay. Um, so, and, and at five months, that's when we found out that she did have cortical visual impairment is what they called it, CVI. Okay. Okay. Um, where basically her eyes were fine, but it was her brain. Okay. It was not allowing her to see. Got it. Okay. So yeah. the eyes themselves, so it's mm-hmm. not even a form of, of blindness. Nope. Right. Okay. Because right. it's more of the firing off yes. to the brain to say right. what they're seeing. Right. Okay. It's like the message wasn't getting to the brain. Okay. She was seeing things, but she didn't have like reflexes or anything with her, with her eyes. Okay. And were you also seeing that the tone and the, you know, muscle weakness and those things, were they continuing to not improve? Yes. She didn't grasp anything. She didn't reach for anything. She didn't attempt to roll over. She was just floppy. It just, it was like, she was just there. She put you, she stayed where you put her, but she didn't try to move anywhere else. Um, She was extremely fussy, almost like she was in pain, especially after eating. Okay. Um, And then she would vomit and she would be better. Wow. Okay. And so tell me about that. Cause really then you say two months later started having the spasms. What do they think was the, the, you know, the, the part where you say she seemed like she was in pain in the eating and the feeding, did all that have to do with brain? It did. Okay. We didn't realize it at the time. Um, but it did because at the time when we, so we went to the eye doctor and then they referred us to a neurologist and then the neurologist that was started a whole gamut of tests and, you know, genetic testing and MRIs, everything, but everything came back normal. Okay. So we were just at a loss. Um, but they, they, the only thing that was abnormal at the time was she was having EEGs. And that was, you know, to measure the brain waves and she would have spikes is what they called it. And so they would say, have you seen anything that looks like a seizure? And at that time we had not, that was at five months. Okay. So for the next two months we didn't, but we felt like we were supposed to be watching for that since they kept asking, have you seen any? And we said, no. So at seven months I was coming in um, to pick her up from my mom. I was still working and my mom was keeping her. And I came in and as soon as I walked in the door and saw her, her arms went out like the startle reflex in babies. She just, her arm, she looked startled. And at that point we didn't know she couldn't, she didn't process what she was seeing. So I knew it wasn't that she was, someone had scared her. Um, That was a spasm. That was the very first spasm. And there wasn't like a loud noise either because her hearing was fine. So it wasn't even like a loud noise that you'd be like, oh, she was startled by a sound or a movement. No, no, not at all. Legs and arms went out and her head went back and her eyes got wide. Okay. And then that was repetitive. It happened maybe for, it lasted maybe a minute and she probably did that 20 times within the minute. Really? So I knew, yeah. And I knew, I thought, okay, I've never seen this type of seizure before, but this is not normal. So I immediately picked up the phone and called the neurologist. And she said, this is exactly what I was worried about. Okay. And she said, this is called infantile spasms. And that was the first time, I mean, even as a nurse that I had even heard of it. It's very rare. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So then what were your next steps after that? 
So they admitted her to the hospital because infantile spasms is is catastrophic to the brain of a developing child. So usually when the spasms start, development stops because they explained it to us as say you have a chalkboard that's full of information and every time they have one of those spasms, there's a little bit that's erased. They lose anything that they've gained, whether it's suck and swallow or, you know, grasping something, whatever it may be, they lose it. Um, so she was admitted to the hospital. We had overnight EEGs. They continued to see the spasms. She was immediately started on ACTH, a steroid, to try to stop the seizures as quickly as possible. Um, they didn't start, they didn't stop right away, but they did stop. But she developed a GI bleed from the steroids. So we had to immediately come off of them. And it's not something that you take long term anyway. But because we had to come off of them, the spasms came back and they were relentless. I mean, she would have them, you know, 20, 30 times a day. Wow. And they were lasting longer. And you don't give rescue meds for the this type of seizure because it just doesn't work. It doesn't stop them. Um, so that's when Terry started researching because while the hospital that we were at was a children's hospital in our area, that is a good children's hospital for other things. We just felt like Carly needed more specialized care than what they could give her there. Mm-hmm. And so he started researching in, in hospitals that specialize in infantile spasms specifically. And Dr. Wheelis's name came up over and over and over in Labonner Children's Hospital. So we made a phone call and we were there in two weeks. Wow. And that was right around that seven, eight months old. So we went... Her, the first time we went, she was actually a year old at this point because we were in and out of the hospital between seven and 12 months. Yeah. Um, okay. Trying to still treat these seizures, not realizing we're not going to get these under control here. We, we got to go somewhere else. So it took us about that, that long right. to figure out we need to go somewhere else. Yeah. And at this time, Ansley is... Eight? eight and a half. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, and I, you know, I had the great privilege of meeting your mama and daddy. And so I know how amazing they are. Um, and so were you just really dependent upon family help? I mean, cause obviously Terry's working. Had you Absolutely. stopped working? Were you still trying to work? I was still working. Um, I had gone part-time okay. and I was still working. I went, we went to La Bonner after Carly's first birthday. Terry went with me on this visit, obviously, because it was the first one. Um, and mom and dad stayed back and kept Ansley. And we quickly learned lots of information at La Bonner that we did not know and restarted ACTH and, and different things and came home and had to go back in less than three weeks for rechecks and everything. And I then asked the doctors, being a nurse, I knew that Carly was not going to develop normally from here on out and things were going to look different. I didn't know exactly how different, but I knew they were going to be different. Um, And I just asked some really hard questions. And one of them was, there's, this is going to be multiple appointments, multiple therapists. It's probably best if I'm the one that's home with her, right? And they said, well, she's going to need nursing care. So since I'm a nurse, I was not, I just, I needed to be the one to be home 
taking care of her. So that's when we decided that I would stay home now. Okay. Okay. Um, and so then from there, because you're Dr. Wheelis patient, you're going, I mean, how often? Oh goodness. In the beginning we were going about every, every three months, unless we needed to get there sooner. We were going, it might be four weeks. It might be eight weeks. You just, you didn't know. And we kept a bag pack and it's a nine hour drive and we just left whenever we had to. And most of the time then mom would go back to those appointments with me because Terry was the only one working at this point. Yeah. You know, he's got to protect that job and the insurance. So, yeah. Okay. Um, And then I just remember stories too of granddaddy then being with Ansley, you know, like he'd be running her to softball or, you know, going to help her find a dress or, you know, as you're FaceTiming her, you know, him or Terry. Yeah. Yeah. Getting ready for the pageants and, um, you know, all all of the above. Um, And there were many stays where, you thought that it may be a short stay and it ended up being really long long stay. Yes. Our longest was three months because of just her being, tell me about that. Did y'all go thinking because she'd been not doing as well or was it once you got there, you realized, you know, Oh man, there's more going on. Yeah. So once the seizure started, our biggest problem after that was feeding intolerance. Um, So we would try to manage that from home, but then, you know, if they're not eating, they've got to have an IV. Mm-hmm. So you have to do that in the hospital. You have to get fluids in the hospital. And Carly always seemed to snowball. It went from, might be, you know, it was bad, but then it got worse and then it got more worse. And then we ended up in ICU and then be back to the floor. And it was just, it was a constant, it was a constant battle that just seemed to snowball every time. She went on TPN because IV fluids were not enough and it would just take a really long time to get her, her tummy eating again, Mm -hmm. Um, which at, you know, one point we did have to put in a G tube because she could no longer suck and swallow. She couldn't eat my mouth anymore from the infantile spasms. So that in itself was a whole, a whole nother issue. The feeding intolerance was a big, big thing. And then Carly seemed to have just random pain. She couldn't talk, so she couldn't tell us. So she would just scream and cry in pain. Um, so we ended up seeing lots of physicians at Le Bonner, different specialties. You know, we saw your husband. He was Carly's doctor, too, for orthopedics. I mean, it just it just snowballed into every system was affected. And later you did find out, because we talked about it here, too, there was an underlying syndrome, but it took a long time to figure that out. Yes. At four years old, um, there was a test that came out that's called whole exome sequencing. And LaBonner came to us at, at an inpatient time and said, there's a test that is now available. Would you like her to be tested? Now he's going to test for all these things that Pretty much if any of them are found, it's not good because they're so rare. There's not a lot known about them, but do you want to know? And I searched day and night. I just, we were going to be different, that different family. I was going to find out what it was. We were going to be able to treat this. And so, of course, we wanted it done. um, But Terry and I also had to be tested to find out, you know, 
which side it was coming from, if we found anything at all. So they did test her. Um, and that's when we found out that she had the, they call it MITCAP for, for short, um, okay. microcephaly capillary malformation syndrome. Okay. And then Ainsley was tested as well. She it did not, not have it. No, but she is a carrier. Okay. Okay. And so obviously, so is it that one parent must be a carrier? No, both parents have to be a carrier. Yes. Okay. It's heterozygous. So that's why it's so rare. She was the 13th child in the world diagnosed with that syndrome. Wow. And most of the others were in Canada or not in the U.S. They were somewhere else. And we actually spoke with the geneticist, Dr. Melissa Carter, that founded the gene that causes Metcalf syndrome. We spoke to her on several occasions, and Carly was in a study that they were doing of the children that they knew of. Okay. And there's no, nothing to be done for it? Nothing at all, other than treating the symptoms, because it was so rare and so little was known. You treat the symptoms of the feeding issues and then the seizures. And a lot of the children had um, breathing issues as well, and Carly did not. That was one thing that we did not have a problem with. And was it, did y'all ever find out what was the underlying pain? I always thought that it was belly. Um, I always, that would start and then the feeding intolerance would follow. I always felt like it was her belly that was causing her pain. Yeah. Um, And then as she got older, she, she developed dystonia, Mm -hmm. which, um, it's just their muscles tighten up and it can happen in one limb or all their limbs or all over. And it progressed to be all over for Carly. And that was extremely painful. Yeah. And what can you do for that? So you have to give medications um, that release those muscles. She was on medications daily for Parkinson's that help to, to relax those muscles um, but then those medications in, the, in itself cause other problems like urinary retention. And so you take medication for that and it just, you know, it trickles into other things. But um, Valium was a big thing that she had to take daily mm-hmm. to try to keep it from happening. And then when it did happen, you'd have to give her much larger doses to try to break the cycle of the dystonia. Okay. Um, and then on researching myself... I felt like at an early age, Carly was going through precocious puberty. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt like she was, it was all starting very early just from different um, signs that I was seeing. And I read that the puberty could cause dystonia to be worse. And so for a couple of years. In patients, like in patients with this syndrome? With dystonia. With dystonia in general. Yes. Just with dystonia in general. So I did find a GYN that practiced in Memphis, um, a pediatric GYN. It took a few years of us convincing her that um, I felt like removing Carly's ovaries would help her with the dystonia. Because at this point, she was having dystonia daily. Mm. And I mean, we were on massive doses of Valium, which is what you take as your rescue med for seizures. So since we're taking so much for dystonia, it's not working for seizures anymore. So Carly was just, it just, it was just going downhill so fast. Um, And we did end up having the surgery. She removed her ovaries um, and she only had, so she passed away nine and a half months after she had the surgery. 
but she only had dystonia three more times after that surgery. So I truly believe it was a huge help for her. And I just wish we had had it done sooner. Yeah. Yeah. But just not something I guess a lot of doctors have done or seen. No, No, we actually had to go before the ethics committee um, to even have it done because she's nonverbal. She was a child. Um, She didn't have the mental capability to consent to that. So Mm -hmm. that was a whole nother, mm, that was a journey in itself, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and so with the, the syndrome, is it one of those things that it really affects the brain, which then affects the, you know, whether that's the breathing, the food intolerance, all those things, is it something that affects numerous organs or is it really focused in on the brain? And then from that is what really made all of her, you know, medical needs and issues go? So it's not clearly defined just because it's so rare and they were still studying and they still are now. Um, But it seems to be in all the children, because I was in contact with all the families of the other 12 children, um, that it was all brain related, that it started with the brain. Um, Looking on MRI at Le Bonheur of her brain, everything was present, but everything wasn't pretty is how they explained it to me. Yeah. Um, It was as if, say you had somebody that was a perfectionist at building a brick wall, it would look beautiful. But if you had someone that had never done it before and put a wall up, they could do it, but it wouldn't look so good. Yeah. That's how they explained that her brain looked to them. So all parts were affected. But, you know, obviously before she started having the infantile spasms, you had never done an MRI. And so really, is there some, is there some thought even of, okay, is the damage that's, you know, made the brain not so pretty, you know, quote unquote, is that from the syndrome or is that from the seizures? I mean, you know, so which one really? I always had, yes. Yeah. I, I just, yeah. I wish that had we known sooner when I knew that something was a little different. Right. Had we looked further, you know, had right. someone listened and not waited until the seizures actually started. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've talked to other people, other medical professionals about this exact thing of, you know, why sometimes does it get to, um, well, I'll just say even in my own case, I, I had a, a spinal tumor um, five years ago and, you know, there were, looking back now, there were lots of signs that I had something really going on. And, you know, but it it took a while seeing a lot of doctors and doing different things. And and part of that, the weirdness of that is my spinal tumor was up there on my T2. um, But I had low back pain. And so they actually even did a, a uh, I guess an MRI. I can't remember. I mean, when we found it, it definitely was an MRI. But we were looking at the low back. We were not looking at the high um, right. until I started having other signs of something's really going on. Um, but I remember kind of being like, what in the world? And our, David's saying, we as doctors don't go to the worst case. We really don't. Like we look at what is the probable, like what typically you rule those out first. You don't immediately go to she has a spinal tumor on her T2. That's why we have lower back pain. We thought I had just literally 
hurt myself lifting a kid or whatever it was. Um, And I've thought about that a lot with, you know, the families we interact with that have a brain tumor or the families we interact with, you know, who, and even because of all the things I've seen through the years, you know, one of our kids gets a bad stomach bug. And I mean, I'm, and I'm not a person that lives the, the worst is always what happens, but I've definitely looked at David and been like, do do you think he maybe has like a brain tumor? Like why why is he getting migraines? Why is he getting sick? And David's like, he's dehydrated, you know, he, whatever. Um, and so I know it's so hard to look back, Yes, you know, and say, if, if, what if, da, 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 da. Um, but to also realize at the same time, you know, I'm thankful that not every doctor goes to the worst because we don't want our kids or even ourselves to go through unnecessary procedures or treatment or whatever. If it really is just that my son is dehydrated, you know, like, you know, but it's hard because now obviously that's why they're saying hindsight 2020, you can look back and say, man, I told y'all at three months that she wasn't looking at me. I told you she was her tone. I told you all these things. Um, but also to realize they're human. They don't go to worst case. You know, they, um, some babies really, I mean, even in my own kids, I had one kid walking, literally like running at nine and a half months. And I had another one that was like 13 months, you know, walking and they're both today, you know, they're very different, but they're, you know, they're both as far as their milestones hit them. And so I do think there's something too of, you know, each kid is different. Um, But, and you knew more because of your background and your medical knowledge and, um, and you know, your kids, I mean, there's something about, you know, I think all moms do, but you really did. I mean, you knew when Carly was off just a little bit or something, you know, I mean, I feel like even the a few times that she'd get, you know, with her being nonverbal, but it was like, you would know, I think she has a UTI or I think she may have this going on or, or, you know, whatever it may be, which, you know, she was given to you for that reason. I mean, so many reasons, but one of those being is you were such an amazing advocate for her and for her health and her needs. Um, there's anything about Carl you can say is, man, that girl was, mightily loved by she was so awesome. many but yes you and Ansley and Terry and your parents and um and then all those who was Carly's army along the way she was mightily loved for sure um so so now you're going to Le Bonner often you're starting there for infantile spasms but as you said it ballooned into numerous specialists um and when y'all go you're staying you know, obviously you're uprooting your lives. You're staying anywhere from a couple days to a couple months. You're right. using the FedEx family house, which is such a gift. Um, gift. That you and your mom, yeah. you and your mom are taking turns in the hospital room with Carly or, or Terry, if he goes or whoever goes with you. Um, when do you really start to, to feel and see that she's struggling, that, you know, we're, things are not going in a direction that we had hoped for? So even before we got the diagnosis, the definitive diagnosis, it was really for me when we put that G-tube in and I Mm -hmm. knew we did that at 15 months old. Um, Me being the nurse, 
let me start by saying when, when kids get G-tubes, that does not mean that all kids are not going to progress yeah, um, and, and get that G-tube out one day. Some will. But with yeah. all the other issues that we had going on and with her brain being the source of right. the cause of most of those issues, I knew that when we put that G-tube in, things were only going to go. They may We may maintain where we are, but we'll never improve from here. Yeah. Um, as she gets older, as she grows more, um, more systems are going to become involved and things are going to yeah. be harder for her. And so I knew that, but trying to relay that to my family and still protect them at the same time was, it was really difficult. Um, yeah. Because being her mom, I didn't want to believe it myself. I wanted right. to change that. And we were going to be different. Yeah. We were do our therapy and everything was going to work. But it didn't. I mean, as she grew, she got heavier. You know, the G-tube allowed us to feed her. And I'm so thankful for it. So thankful. But she got bigger and she got heavier. She had bone loss um, from not bearing weight like she should, you know, running and playing. And she even had vertebral fractures that we thought could have been a source of the pain. But they were when we I think Dr. Spence is who found them when he found them. They were old fractures. We don't even know when they happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew very early on things were going to look different. And then once we got the diagnosis, um, like I said, she was the 13th child diagnosed. And at that time, I believe five children were still living. The rest mm-hmm. had already passed away, usually before their second birthday. Wow. Okay. I was about to ask that too. Yeah. Wow. Or when we found it. So okay. we already beat those odds. Um, and she was actually one of the oldest still living. So at four. At four. Okay. Yeah. And is there anybody that even like we've had friends, you know, we've had the children have had Batten's disease and have had some other really rare um disease. Um one is a uh, I'm forgetting the actual name, but a, a skin where it's like the butterfly and and they're very, very rare. But then there's a specialist out there who maybe is in Canada or maybe is in Minnesota or wherever that they've gone to see. Um, is there even one out there for this with only 13 children? Not one that I had found because they all passed okay. so early or so many of them had. And they were all yeah. in different countries. They were all yeah. over the world. They weren't just in the U.S. Or wow. when I when we spoke with Dr. Wheelis about it, he was Carly's first patient with that diagnosis. Okay. And so, by that point, he'd already been seeing her for three years. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so he didn't even know to say, you should test for this. This is something I've seen. You know, and so, it, you know, I know this is hard to hear, but at the same time, she is going to help so many others yeah. because now LeBonner has seen her. And so hopefully there can even be a, I think you should test for this to other families, mm-hmm. um, you know, and maybe it be sooner, whether that helps them or doesn't help them. But sometimes knowledge is power, you know, and for someone like you in the medical field, I feel like sometimes knowledge really is power of having that. There's so many of those, you know, what's going on being answered because you have this diagnosis. And so maybe things make a little more sense. It doesn't ease the pain of what you're going through and what she's going through or the fear or the grief or any of that, but maybe makes a little more sense. 
It does. And it opens up resources of other families, even if you can get in touch with those families, which I did. Um, there's a Facebook page for the Cat families. So wow. we all talk there and we've gone through loss together. Um, so it, it does finding a diagnosis for some people, they don't want to know, but for, for what I have found for most is it's some kind of closure. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not constantly searching because I drove myself insane searching for what yeah. is, how yeah. can I help her? Um, so for me, it was, it was a very good thing to, to finally have a name and finally yeah. know. And for Ainsley, you know, when she chooses to have children, now that she's a carrier, she cannot pass it to another child or another child won't be affected unless she is, her spouse is also a carrier. Yeah. So she cannot yeah. pass it just, you know, alone. It takes both, but she'll know to test. Yeah. Okay. Um, and she is engaged, right? She's engaged. That's yeah, crazy. I was gonna say. I know. I, know. <laughs> I was like, she's not that far. I mean, you know, maybe we'll wait a little longer, but, but, um, she does have that man in mind here. Of, of we say he's Carly sent. He is heaven sent. Truly, uh, he came after Carly's passing, but they met in college, and she'll graduate in May as a nurse. And I attribute wow. a lot of that to the journey that we've been through with Carly. Wow. Really amazing. Um, so tell me, let's talk a little bit about that last year. Um, kind of lead me through, you know, her, her last year of life and what that was, you know, kind of what she went through and what that was like. Her last year of life. So her seizures were a lot better, actually. She still had seizures, but they had evolved into different types at this point as she aged. They were no longer infantile spasms, but they might be grand malls or generalized or partial seizures or whatever. But those were better. Um, and the feeding issues became more of our biggest issue at that point. Um, she would develop an ileus where her intestines would just stop working. You know, you could put as much food as you wanted to in that belly, but it wasn't going anywhere. She wasn't going to absorb it. She wasn't going to, it wasn't going to pass through. She was going to vomit. And it caused a lot of pain. Mm. So we found ourselves taking steps backwards in her feeding. Um, We would have to stop feeding for a few days. And we knew how many days we had until she had to have fluids. So I could kind of gauge, okay, do we need to leave for the hospital now? You know, do we, do I, how much longer do I have before we have Mm. to go? Um, and every now and then I could get that belly restarted just by giving just a little bit here and there, just a little bit, but it was so painful for her. Mm. And I just saw Carly always had a fight every time we were in the hospital and every time, you know, there would be certain doctors that would say, you know, this really isn't looking well, you know, this could be, this could be the beginning of the end for her. Mm -hmm. She always rallied back. But once I saw in that last year, the fight wasn't there um, like it had been. Mm-hmm. She just let me know she was tired that, you know, she had been here and she was fulfilling her purpose, but she was tired. And so we went to the hospital less um, just because I tried to let her show me what she needed. And I really listened to her body um, and her cues, although she was nonverbal. 
we had a communication. I could understand her. I knew when she needed her diaper changed. I mean, I, without her telling me, just by the, her breathing or sounds that she would make. And those things were just dwindling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with palliative care, with the help of palliative care, which I cannot say enough good things about, and with Dr. Wheelis, when we went that last time um, to La Bonner and were admitted, when we left Graniteville to head to Memphis, I didn't feel like um, we would be back to Memphis after we came home that time. I figured that would be our last trip. And I was right. Um, we got there and her entire intestines had shut down. She was just, they were not working. We gave her the time that she needed. She screamed and cried in pain constantly. We could not get things restarted. Even at a teaspoon an hour, we could not get things to start. Um, every time that Carly had had a central line for TPN, she either got a line infection or it infiltrated. And it just caused so many other problems that she went through. And, and we just decided we're not doing that to her this time. You know, we're going to let her body tell us what it needs. Mm-hmm. And so as the specialists would come in and the pediatricians and we just saw it on everyone's face that, you know, Dr. Wheelis had always told us, you'll know when it's time. Because mm-hmm. um, sometimes as parents, and it's the hardest thing ever is deciding when enough is enough mm-hmm. because, you know, there were things we could have done. We could have done surgery and had, you know, her portion of her intestines removed and bypassed the stomach. We could have, there's many things we could have done, but was that really going to improve her quality of life? Mm-hmm. We were all about quantity and we were all about quality, not quantity. Sorry. And that wasn't going to improve her quality at all. Um, and so we decided we weren't going to those extreme measures and everyone knows without food, you can't survive. Um, and we just, we knew that it was Carly's time and her body was not restarting her. She just, we weren't unable to feed her without her being in pain. And I wanted her comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so we made the decision with all of her doctors to bring her home and just keep her comfortable. And, you know, if things had turned around, we would have known that we could have restarted her feeds, but we knew, we, we just knew that it was, it was her time. Um, and she was comfortable. It was the first time she was relaxed and comfortable that we, we weren't trying to put food in there and to keep her here for us. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was her last visit. And that was the hardest Hardest thing ever was walking out of that hospital and leaving everybody that had become our family. Mm-hmm. Bonner was our family. Um, and coming home and realizing this was it. It was mm-hmm. really time. Because like I said, Carly had, had always rallied back. And this time she wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so Dr. Willis told us that we probably had about two weeks. Um, and we came home and we had six days. Wow. So, yeah, she was closer than we thought she was um, or than the doctors thought that she was. I thought the day that we were bringing her home that we might not make it home that day. So um, we didn't come by ambulance. We were going to 
combat ambulance, even that long way, but um, we didn't end up doing that. We were Dana and Bill, our friends that we met at Le Bonner that are, she's like my sister now, my best friend in the entire world. And Bill and Terry are um, friends of theirs actually flew us home in their private plane. So we could get home quickly. We were home in two hours so that our family could be together. And we were together for the next six days. Every second of those six days, we were all together. Yeah. Wow. And she died in your home mm-hmm. with y'all right there beside her, right where she felt the most loved. We did in our room, listening to our praise music. They would listen to you the whole time from the time we brought her home. And just we were all three together um, with her. My mom and dad were with us because they were such a huge part of our lives with her and her life. And so we were all together and yeah, it was 835 on May 18th, 2021. She took her last breath in our arms. Wow. Yeah. And as hard as it was, it was as peaceful and beautiful as I could have ever wished for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I just, you know, obviously the last couple of years I've just watched and followed, you know, from afar, but, you know, I truly mean there's never, ever a moment I ever thought that Carly didn't know how very deeply loved she was um, by all of y'all and everything that you did. And I know that you can rest easy and have so much peace knowing that you did everything possible to get her the best care and the best possible quality of life that she could have. And I think, you know, only people who have had to say goodbye to loved ones um, can understand what it's like to say, we are, we are loving them the best way we know possible by letting them go. Um, Because to see them suffer and to see them in pain and to see them hurting or so sick um, is not what they would want. And, um, but I think it's hard sometimes for the world to see that unless you have walked it. And, um, it's one of the hardest things I've had to do mentoring some families is having to give that talk and say, you know, your child is showing you they are ready and, um, they will be in no more pain and they will not be in any you know, they're going to be healed and perfect. And um, to them, it's a, a less than a millisecond before they see you again. But to us, it feels like eternity um, mm-hmm. to go without. And I know that, you know, both of your daughters were, you know, your world because how much, especially Carly, needed you couldn't just be a mother to her. You were her nurse and caregiver and doctor and you were everything. And so I know that um, losing her, you know, obviously a lot of that was your identity in that because you had been Carly's mom, you know, and, and Ansley's mom too. But Ansley obviously, you know, wasn't, she was a lot less dependent on you um, as Carly had to be. And and so I know that had to be a big change as well of um, 
you know, not being the caregiver that you had been, not only her mom, but the caregiver that you had been and how much your life had revolved around the care that Carly needed. Um, and so just real quickly, give me kind of an update, you know, since then, what, you know, how's your family doing? Ansley obviously has very happy news, but, um, you know, tell me a little bit about how y'all have been in the last two years and, um, you know, just how, how y'all are holding up. So these last two years, um, they've been a journey in itself. Grief is, grief is all over the place. Um, I found myself, Carly passed away in May and Ansley was leaving for college in August. So, and I hadn't worked for the last almost 10 years now. So I found myself in an empty house when every second of every day had been devoted to Carly's care. So it was like major shock for me. Um, you know, life goes on when, when death happens. It goes on for everyone else, even though your world has stopped. And I was, I had been an LPN for 26 years and decided I had always wanted to go back to school. And I decided now's the time. And everybody thought I was crazy because. <laughs> I was so fresh into this life without Carly and I knew it was, it was exactly what I needed. Um, I need to be back in the medical field. That is, that was my passion before Carly was born. I love being a nurse. I love helping other people. And now I have a whole new understanding of a whole different world that's out there that I knew nothing about before Carly. Um, and I just feel like I have so much I need to give back um, to the community. I wish it was at Le Bonner. Um, It's just so far away. I just wish it was there. But I just feel like I can make a difference. And so I went back to school and I'll graduate in May with my RN. Um, I have plans to continue to get my master's. I'm getting older, but that's the <laughs> plan. Um, actually, Ainsley and I will graduate at the same time. I mean, no, amazing. Yes. With okay. our audience. Yeah. So um, obviously she went away to college and she blossomed at college. She has just loved every minute of it. Terry's in a different job than he was in. That's been wonderful for our family, better for our family. Um, we're all doing well. Um, we miss Carly. Gosh, every minute of every day. And there's times when it just stops you in your tracks and you feel like you can't take another breath. But you keep going. They yeah. kept going. You know, all those times I think about all the times she fought back. I can do that, too. And I'm doing that. We're all doing that. And she still has she still has a story to tell, maybe through us still. But there's still a t- story to tell and it's not finished. Yeah. Not over. Yeah. Well, I'm very proud of all of y'all, and um, I know she is, too. I know she's smiling down on her mama and so proud of all of y'all, and I know that um, her life and her legacy will continue on, and um, she'll be with y'all in spirit at Ansley's wedding, and um, and I know that um, she'll be with you every day as you practice medicine and as you, you know, um, get to, you know, our tagline of empathy, understanding, hope. I mean, you are going to be that because you can empathize, empathize, you can offer understanding and hope because 
you, um, you honestly, um, I sometimes tell families when I walk into their room, I feel like they think I'm the grim reaper because I am their worst nightmare. You know, I am what they hope doesn't happen. And, um, but at the same time, you know, we are also showing these families like you can come back from the worst thing. You can survive the death of a child. You can survive, um, you know, what that your life, David and I just celebrated. We went out of town, celebrated 20 years of marriage. And one of the things we really spoke about a lot this week is, you know, can 20 years ago, we were doing this actually on the night before our anniversary. And, and we were talking about, you know, rehearsal dinner and we were so young and, and we were like, you know, um, in essence, is this where we thought we'd be? You know, is this what you envision? And it is not. I mean, in any way, you know, it's it's not. But it doesn't mean it's it's bad or it's not. It's just so different. You know, I would not have ever chosen for losing a child or, you know, doing what I do. But I also know that was the plan and um and that there's purpose to that. And to walk away from that is to walk away from God's plan. And um, and we all know from stories in the Bible that that's not a good thing to do is walk away from whatever God's purpose is that he has for you. And so I know that um, God's going to use that in your life and in the lives of those families that you touch um, as being a nurse and that Ainsley touches. And I tell many families who are struggling with how is the sibling going to handle this or do with this. And I always tell families, trust that there's purpose in that. And you may not see it for a long time, but you may see it in as clear cut as Ainsley chose medicine. Um, if that's not, but even in the way that she's a future mother, the way that she's a future, you know, um, wife and uh, caregiver and all those different things, you know, whether it's social work or uh, our lady we had on the podcast earlier lived across the street from a pediatrician her whole entire life. And so that's what she knew she wanted to do. And in the end, she ended up having a child with medical needs and how much that played into the type of mother she you know, is fighting for this child that has special needs or medical needs. So, you know, knowing that there's purpose in that and and seeing that for the siblings of these children, because it is so hard. I know how divided you often felt and how much you wanted to be with Ansley as she played softball and did the pageants and did that world. But knowing you had to be with Carly um, and trusting that there's purpose in that, too, and that um, even at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, maybe she couldn't quite understand it. But knowing that one day she'll be able to see the reason for that um, and just trusting that. So um, thank you for sharing her story. Um, It really is a joy to be able to, to know you and to know your story and um, to know what all y'all um, just even the nine hour drive that y'all would make from South Carolina to get all the way to La Bonner children's hospital um, and how much everybody loved Carly. So um, thank, thank you so you. much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. And thank you to you and David both for all that you do. You, I just, I say you have no idea, but you have an idea. You you see the families that you've touched their lives and you walk this journey with us, not because you have to, you choose to. 
And that's really hard knowing that you're going to relive a lot of what you've already been through every single time that you choose to walk with families. And that is difficult. That is extremely difficult. And I'm extremely thankful um, because without seeing other families like yours, that they've made it to the other side, you're, you're not just surviving. You're living a happy life. You're giving back. You have joy. And your other children are thriving. And your marriage, it, it is such an inspiration to families like mine. And I just thank you both. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, it really is. Your families like yours are, are the reason that we just keep on keeping on and um, and offer us the hope of knowing that little things make a, a big difference. Um, you know, you weren't a family that needed just, you know, loads of financial support or loads of even the physical support. Um but you needed just a friend. You needed someone that stopped in and gave a hello and gave you a hug and, um, you know, and, and talked to Carly because she could hear you, you know, and paid attention to Carly and loved on your mama, whatever it looked like, you know, um, the little things matter. And I always knew that with y'all. So thank you for sharing. Thanks for giving us your time. And we cannot wait to see the future for your family. Thank you so much, Brittany. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. We hope that this podcast is a resource for you and a source of support. Whether you are facing illness in your own family or want to walk beside other families dealing with childhood illness, we want the stories, wisdom, and knowledge shared to give you hope. Episodes will be released bi-weekly, so be sure to subscribe today.